It's a documentary. It's all really happening. Hello, my name is Will, and you're listening to Exploding Helicopter, the only podcast in the world dedicated to the celebration of helicopter explosions in film. Now, it's fair to say that exploding helicopters are almost exclusively found in the action genre. Sadly, serious cinema has remained a chopper fireball free zone. Esteemed filmmakers as diverse as Paul Thomas Anderson, Terence Malick and Werner Herzog have shunned our favourite movie trope and gone their whole career without ever once sending a whirlybird to a fiery death. But in this show, we're reviewing that rarest of all aviation animals, an exploding helicopter in an art house movie. So today we're looking at The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. To help me review the film, I've brought in an unpaid intern who's hoping to gain credits towards her grades. We're both sitting here wearing our matching tracksuits and vintage eyeglasses, so I think we're ready to go. So joining me on this show is Helen Sadler from the Flixwatcher podcast. How are you doing, Helen? I'm good, thanks. How are you today, Will? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. Although I probably need to start with an apology because uh, we've been talking about reviewing this film for about a year now. And I have to say, I've been putting it off for quite a while because I'm not huge on uh, the arty farty cinema. So uh, I'm hoping you can forgive me and uh, help me understand perhaps uh, what I'm missing out on. Definitely. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm quite, <laughs> I like the fact that you've included it. Under serious directors, I thought that was quite flattering towards Wes Anderson. So, um, yeah, it is a rarity. And um, as we'll discuss, I'm not quite sure how much of an actual explosion it is, but it is a rare piece of action in what is the art house canon. Now, celebrating helicopter explosions in film, I mean, that is the sole purpose uh, of this podcast and increasingly seemingly the sole purpose of my life. But, you know, as you're here, I need to ask you about what you think of helicopter explosions in film, because I know they're probably not uh, something I know that your tastes tend to run to uh, sort of better quality films. And so they probably don't feature as much. So uh, I don't know what you uh, generally think of uh, helicopter explosions when you encounter them. Um, I do like a good chopper fireball and... You've already reviewed some of the ones that I've quite enjoyed so far. I'm a big fan of the one in 21 Jump Street. That's one of my favourites and True Lies as well. So anything from kind of the 90s canon of action films and the late 80s, probably around then. I think that the problem with a lot of explosions in films now is that they all tend to rely mostly on CGI. So they're not quite as good in the way that you feel the metal splintering apart and sort of exploding. It just kind of all goes in a big sort of and that's it. So um, anything that feels a little bit clunky, I think, is my preferred explosion. Well, it's interesting, the the two uh, that you picked out there, they're both exploding helicopters that have a sort of slight I guess, comedic element to them, certainly, definitely in 22 Jump Street, but also the one in True Lies has a certain sort of comedy value to it because it is slightly ridiculous with Art Malik attached to that missile as it heads towards the the helicopter and obviously Arnie gets a, a cheesy one-liner. So it seems you, lo- you like your exploding helicopter to be uh, lightened with a little bit of humour, it seems. I think so, yeah, because, you know, the helicopters are a thing in reality and I wouldn't like to be walking around thinking that they could be exploding without something slightly ridiculous or over the top being done to them to make it happen. I think maybe that's my reasoning in why I like the comedy ones more than the serious ones. Yeah, I mean, it would make walking down the street very <laughs> stressful if, if we were worrying about yeah. being uh, showered with uh, with broken up helicopter at any moment. So. <laughs> Yeah, I think better, but better that we uh, we sort of focus on the ones that have that air of unreality, so we don't have to sort of uh, you know start becoming that paranoid about our daily lives. Yes, I think that's right. 
Now, uh, before we get stuck into uh, our main feature, I always like to uh, ask people who come on the show about uh, uh, something interesting they've seen lately. So uh, I don't know if you've got anything for me, Helen. Um, I have. I actually, um, I was at the cinema last night and um, probably the what I went to see was an example of sort of the difference in what I go to the cinema to see and um, sort of the films that feature on this podcast. I went to see The Handmaiden, which is the new film from the director of Old Boy, Park Chan-wook, who also did Lady Vengeance as well, based on the novel Fingersmith, which um, they changed the setting from sort of Victorian era in Britain to a career. So um, I saw that. Um, it's described as an erotic psychological thriller. That always gets my interest. I do love an erotic thriller. And um, it was very good. It's sort of done in three parts. It's a little bit kind of twisty, turny, but that's not really the main thing that makes it quite interesting. It's very funny as well. I think that I was really surprised at how funny it was. And the uh, the two female leads in it are very good. And there is an octopus in it. <laughs> so that won't disappoint people. Not a bigger role this time, but it is in there. What a bizarre director's trademark. It's almost as good yeah. as John Woo and his doves. Yeah. So um, look out for the octopus in there. It doesn't come till later on, but it is in there. Okay. Well, I won't, uh, you know, hopefully it won't meet a stickier end, stickier end as the one in uh, Old Boy did. No, but it's it's interesting anyway. I'll just leave it at that. So, uh, You'll leave that dangling, uh, dangling yes. with us. Okay. Fair enough. Well, I think it's time to get stuck into uh, the life aquatic. But before we do that, I have arranged for Willem Dafoe to explain the film's premise and central themes. The Belafonte, home to Team Sisu. Scaled crew of deep sea divers, adventurers, documentary filmmakers. Action! Led by internationally renowned oceanographer Captain Steve Sisu. Expert on every aspect of marine life. Swamp leeches, everybody! Check for swamp leeches! Nobody else got hit? I'm the only one? What's the deal? But there remains one form of life about which Captain Sisu knows very little. You're supposed to be my son, right? I want you on Team Sisu. The answer's yes. Well, it's got to be. I'll order you a red cap and a speedo. Oh! This will be Team Zisu's most ambitious adventure to date. I'm going to go on an overnight drunk, and in 10 days, I'm going to set out to find the shark that ate my friend and destroy it. What would be the scientific purpose of killing it? Revenge. So The Life Aquatic was directed by Wes Anderson, who also co-wrote the script with Noah Baumbach. The story revolves around the central character, Steve Zizu. He's an eccentric, down-on-his-luck oceanographer who is out to revenge the death of his friend who has been killed by a mythical shark. Zizu is joined on this adventure by his estranged wife, a journalist, and a man who may or may not be his son. The film's huge ensemble cast features Bill Murray, Kate Blanchett, uh, Owen Wilson, Angelica Houston, Jeff Goldblum, Michael Gambon, and uh, Willem Dafoe. It came out in 2004. The film followed Anderson's success with uh, Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums, but The Life Aquatic got something of a sort of rough critical reception. People magazine said that the film was willfully eccentric without ever letting the rest of us in on the joke. But if you look around online, it's not hard to find some very loyal fans of this movie who, whilst sort of acknowledging its problems, they sort of argue passionately for its quality so uh, Helen I wondered if uh, you could perhaps sort of give us your sort of view on Wes Anderson and uh, perhaps then sort of tell us what you uh, what you where you where you think the life aquatic sits in 
uh, in amongst his filmography? Well, I am a very, very big Wes Anderson fan since Rushmore, really. I do love all his films. Admittedly, I feel that his later films have become a little bit of a pastiche of a Wes Anderson film, but <laughs> I, I do. There's something about them. I mean, I think the same things that I like about them is the reason why so many people dislike them. They are very kitsch. They are um, sort of very hipstery. They all seem to kind of have the same themes running through them. They all seem to be a little bit kind of wacky or sort of a little mm. bit sort of dreamy and meandery. This one in particular, when I watched it, I didn't really like it. It took me maybe two or three watches before I sort of got into it. And I'm not quite sure why that was. Um, but in sort of, it's up there in my sort of top, three Wes Anderson films and it it also kind of makes it marks a change because this is the last the the first one he wrote without Owen Wilson um he'd previously written written the first three with Owen Wilson and I think that's noticeable in the sweetness whereas Rushmore Bottle Rocket and the Royal Tenenbaums are quite sweet the life aquatic is a little bit more sour and I think that is represented by the lack of warmth that maybe Owen Wilson might have brought with his writing that's an interesting point that you, you've made about feeling that this film is a bit more sour than than Rushmore. And I have to say, I haven't seen um, all of uh, Anderson's films. Uh, I've only ever seen uh, Rushmore. It's got that in comparison. But, um, you know, I wouldn't describe The Life Aquatic as sour. And tonally, I wouldn't differentiate it too much from Rushmore. And if anything, I would say that The Life Aquatic is perhaps a bit sweeter. I mean, I think there's a very sort of gentle strand of, of comedy in here. And I found Rushmore a bit more depressing than I found The Life Aquatic. Uh, I don't know how that strikes you as somebody who's much more sort of familiar with those films and with uh, Anderson's work. I was watching it, um, rewatched it, and uh, women do not come off well in this film, um, <laughs> which is, I think, another thing that sours it a little bit because mm. um, he describes his um, his wife, Eleanor, as being a rich bitch. And the only other woman in it, Anne-Marie, is um, sort topless of ostracized. Topless time. Yep, either topless or basically being the stick in the mud for wanting to sail in waters that don't have pirates in them and uh, is the reason they sort of have that mini mutiny going on so they don't come off that well and Steve Zizou he's not a cool dude really he's selfish he's he's just a bit terrible really I mean he obviously redeems himself slightly in the end but he's just very grumpy he's very arrogant for sort of uh, you know your main protagonist he doesn't have many redeeming features uh, to begin with, is he tricking Ned to, you know, whether he believes that he is actually his father or whether he's just after his money? We don't really know that. He's rude. This is, the kind of list goes on with uh, mm. Bill Murray's character here. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's interesting that we have different views about it. Part of that may be that it's just some time since I've seen Rushmore, and uh, if I rewatched it, maybe I would uh, come to the same conclusion. But uh, no, I, I was a very as soon as you said that, I was very struck by this idea that the Life Aquatic was more sour than uh, than that film. But uh, obviously, you've you've mentioned um, Bill Murray's character Steve Zizou, and the film kind of stacks him with a, a very sort of heavy psychic burden in this film. So uh, his career is on the skids. Uh, his rival is going out with his uh, with his wife his best friend has just been killed and he's trying to connect to this man who may or may not be his son so you know whilst you've got this sort of notional plot for the film which is built around sort of Bill Murray's 
uh, attempts to avenge his friend's death. The film really seems to be sort of about these much bigger issues that, that Murray is, is confronting around fatherhood and what Murray's place in the world is or what his legacy is. And, you know, I, I was interested in what, what you thought about the sort of thematic concerns here, because whilst the themes are very clear, I've not re- I'm not really sure what Anderson is trying to say with, with any of the stuff that he's very clearly sort of driving at in this film. So I don't know if you can help me out with this, Helen. I don't know. I think that's sort of the way with Wes Anderson films that he has these loose themes, but he doesn't really push them in any particular way. He'll just kind of lay them out there. Most of the time, there's in all his films, there's a lack of a father figure or strong parental guidance. And the children always seem to be much smarter than the adults. But in this film, there isn't really that many children. So it's slightly different in lacking of the children. And the absent father has been explored over and over and over and over again. So I don't know, his themes are always kind of like a little bit loosely sewn in there. And sometimes it's more about sort of little sections in the film, for example, when he's describing his boat and you take the walk through. Mm. That's kind of like the set piece. So they're like these mini set pieces he has within the film. And then there's themes and plots that sort of sewn in so he can have these little beautiful scenes here and there. That's definitely my experience of watching this film because there were scenes that I enjoyed in this film, scenes that I thought were were very good, but they didn't actually then bundle up into a whole like much of anything. And you know, it was a it, it's a sort of curious thing to sort of watch uh, a film where you do have these interesting character moments where you know, like where maybe Bill Murray is is talking to Owen Wilson about their relationship or trying to establish some sort of relationship and you know and whilst well, they, they whilst they're they good talk in... about I was going to say sorry they give each other nicknames that's the or they want to rename each other or add you know a new thing on a flag which is very strange I mean he doesn't read Steve Zizi doesn't really want to know what he's been doing in his life or anything he now just wants him on the film and the now and he doesn't really think about the past or what he's missed out on and then even at the end of the film he says to Angelica Houston the character that he was thinking about adopting him and she says oh well you know he's he was 35 but I you know I would have considered it so like you said very different very strange way that maybe a slightly more serious film would have approached absent fatherhood and how they try to reconnect after 30 years of not knowing about each other. What did you make of the menage a trois between uh, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson and, and Kate Blanchett? Because it felt like that should be the heart of the film, but I, I don't really know. Again, I was struggling to, to really understand what uh, Anderson was was looking to do there, because you have all manner of uh, father-son issues going on within that uh, menage a trois, because obviously Kate Blanchett's character is is pregnant uh, in the movie with uh, uh, with uh, a married man's child. So you've got the kind of the uh, an additional sort of uh, father and son aspect going on there. So, yeah, I don't know if you've got any insights to what on earth was going on with that part of the movie. Um, not really, no. I mean, it's just, it's a little <laughs> bit odd. As she says that Steve is clearly too old for her. It also is a little bit strange. Maybe there needed to be a romantic element in there to balance things out. Romance, again, isn't a particularly strong thing in Wes Anderson's films. If it's there, then it's it's slightly obscure. In, in Grand Budapest, it's um, slightly strange in there because you have obviously Rafe Fine's relationship with, I can't remember the character's name now, but it's Tilda Swinton's character who's about 90 in it. 
that's one of the romances in there. Um, Moonrise Kingdom, the romances between two very young children. So I use the term romance very strangely. And also Steve refers to um, Kate Blanchett's character as a bull dyke and a pregnant slut at um, <laughs> points as well. So it's, it's like a, I think it's more of a kind of a competition for Steve to try and, I don't know, have everyone like him or just to get what he wants all the time. Whereas Ned's kind of, you know, simple and, and nice that he doesn't even see it as being that kind of competition. Yeah, because Bill Murray's character has surrounded himself with a really, you know, a very eclectic bunch of people who are not necessarily as as we find out in the film qualified for the for the jobs that they're doing and you know it perhaps suggests speaks to perhaps this self-centeredness at, at, at you know the heart of perhaps Bill Murray's character that he's surrounding himself with people who will idolize him to to some greater or, or lesser extent but you know he won't um, you know because he he's he's got this element of perhaps vainness to his personality yeah they are definitely a complete ramshackle bunch and um they're very sweet and very charming. I think if they they weren't so sweet and so charming and so bizarre and unqualified to be doing anything they're meant to be doing, then without them, the film wouldn't be, it would just be Steve being a bit arrogant and being not very nice. And so I think they need to be there to make it, make it like that niceness and not make it a little bit nasty, which, you know, it could be if it was all Steve and his arrogance and, um, his interesting ways for describing uh, the the reporter. So this film's obviously tackling some some really meaty issues here, uh, you know, as are the themes here. But the approach for me, I found the approach kind of all over the place. You've got you've got droll humour, you have moments of slapstick. There are several shoot 'em up action sequences, and there's there's sort of no small amount of uh, ruminative ruminative uh, contemplation in this movie. And I have to say, I did struggle a bit with the style and tone and and how it all meshes together. I mean, do you think Anderson pulls it all together? Um, not quite. I don't think there's any of his other films that are quite so action based. I mean, there's a shootout. We'll obviously come to the 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 chop of fireball and it's also it's very very sweary as well which i noticed this time round so you've got a lot of bad language a bit of violence not even the dogs farewell in this film and the cats i mean a cat <laughs> cat gets got by a rat snake the dog is sort of silenced by jeff goldblum's character in not a nice way so you've got that there as well the only thing that sort of is tying it together really is the soundtrack but it's not as fun I don't think as as Rushmore and it's not as sweet as the Royal Tenenbaums I mean I do I do like it but it is very unbalanced this the the darkness doesn't quite sit with a lot of the lighter humor and the action scenes the the gunfight doesn't really sit with any of their characters either because they don't Mm. particularly seem like the kind of people who are particularly able to fire and hit their targets you would assume from their backgrounds exactly and bill murray at one point in this film sort of turns into almost uh, john wick as he sort of storms into this uh, room like firing his pistol at this uh, bunch of heavily armed pirates and it it just seems completely out of character and and as you were saying the idea that uh, the other sort of bunch of assorted uh, ne'er-do-wells who are, who are going along with Steve Zoo, the, the idea that they would be 
completely up for a kind of gun battle does seem a little bit odd but uh, I think you know for me you know sort of the broader point about the sort of the tone of of this film and and also of Rushmore the other Wes Anderson film that that I've seen I I think that this is the sort of the biggest stumbling block that I have about enjoying these films because they are so heavily designed you know they're almost designed to death they they, they start to feel a bit claustrophobic to me and you know I don't mind filmmakers sort of world building but here it almost feels like the world is is sort of closing in on me uh, as a viewer and it just feels as if you know Addison's amusing himself more than sort of trying to do something for the audience. That is something about the films that none of the characters or anything in them could exist outside these worlds and in these films there's no reference to the real world so the characters the settings everything just exists purely inside here and I think that's the same way for how they tackle themes that you know they may have brought up this theme but how they handle it might not be right or it might not reach any resolution but because it's in that world it doesn't really matter if it's all resolved by them or sitting in a little submarine thing watching a fish because (laughs) that's how things happen in this world that everything will be all right and everyone will be forgiven and he wasn't responsible for any of it because he showed them all the fish and Mm. that's it and his documentary is a great success so that's it that's nicely tied up and it's the same for all of his films which is why as he sort of keeps releasing more and more films, I'm sort of less into them because he, he's not moving on or doing anything particularly different because he just does the same thing, but, you know, with different characters or in the case, not really with the different characters as Bill Murray does tend to appear playing a similar role in every film. I sometimes wonder if it would be an idea to sort of ask, you know, Wes Anderson to sort of make a, a dogma type film, just no sets, no lighting, no props, and see, you know, what he would come up with. I don't know. I think I think he'd have a meltdown. I don't think he'd be able to do it. Um, you know, he's directed adverts for American Express and H&M, and even then they're in these fantastical worlds that he creates. I think if he was sort of forced to make a documentary or something, he'd um, it would be great for us to watch because he'd be having kind of a meltdown and he'd be like why isn't everything the same color theme and you know why isn't that person wearing matching outfits and things and yeah it'd be great to watch for the viewer but I think he had a meltdown. So this film has got a a massive cast of characters here Uh, were there was there anyone that particularly stood out for you for either good or bad reasons? Well I think probably the weakest link here may is probably Owen Wilson his character's a little bit spacey uh and it's the most I've seen Owen Wilson try to act other than what he normally does so you kind of get the feeling that he's trying but in the cast that is so huge Michael Gambon's in it he's particularly great and you've got Noah Taylor in there as well and obviously we've already mentioned um William Defoe who is obviously a standout there um I was really kind of he should do more comedy like he's really good in this and I, I can't think of him ever doing a comedic role I'd love to see it not intentionally probably but um, <laughs> yeah I mean he's great in it so yeah and also um the guy who plays the uh, the Bond stooge would court him a very small character but um just feel so sorry for him when he's sort of kidnapped and um taken away and the little phone message he leaves just by these little phone message he's a very sweet little character but yeah definitely um 
Klaus, he's a favourite of mine. What did you make of Kate Blanchett? Because I jarred on her performance and she's doing a very mannered performance here and of a sort of, I guess, slightly sort of prissy sort of British stereotype. I think that's the kind of thing that she seems to be sort of aiming for. But it just kind of stuck out a bit for me. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you on that one. It's a bit of a waste, really, because she's great and um, there could have been much more to do with her role. But I guess she's just there to provide the romantic interest, which, as we've already discussed, is a bit odd and not really required. Apparently, Wes Anderson wanted Gwyneth Paltrow originally for her role, but they uh, there was scheduling problems, so they couldn't get her. And I'm not sure I would. Well, to be honest, I'm not sure I ever want to see Gwyneth Paltrow in any film, but um, I'm not sure that I would I would think that she would do a better job or not. I don't know. Well, she's very, very good in the Royal Tenenbaums. She's great in that. So I guess that would have been his reasoning for, for that. But I don't know. She I don't think she would have worked either. It's, I just think it's a character that, other than being there as the reporter, is a little bit unnecessary anyway. And what did you think of Bill Murray in this? Because I I actually, you know, I've watched this film uh, a few times now, and I've actually warmed to his performance in this movie. I have to say, the first time that I watched this, I really uh, was very, very critical of Bill Murray's performance in this. I just thought he's, you know, there's a very thin line between underacting and not acting. And I when I first watched this film, felt that he had fallen the wrong side of that, just wasn't acting. Um, I've kind of changed my mind on that, but I do think his early scenes in this film are, he's not very good in them. Uh, he de- kind of about half an hour, 40 minutes in, he, he, he seems to, he seems to sort of hit, he seems to sort of improve. And I don't know, but this does seem to me to be uh, like a, a flatness in his early scenes, which, is is just bad i think you're right what i sort of felt from watching it again quite recently is that he almost seems a little bit bored to be Mm. playing the role at the beginning and then as kind of he's challenged a little bit more and things don't go his way he has to react and sort of when he's reacting more he's much better and obviously when he's i don't know if he's finding himself or whether you know things are happening that he can't control he becomes a bit more human and a bit more likable but it does feel that you know he is bill murray paying bill murray for most of the film which is what he tends to do now so i just thought we'd uh finish up our our discussion of this uh film by um by sort of doing a bit of wes anderson bingo so uh there is uh i don't know if you've ever googled wes anderson bingo but you can find uh your bingo cards there um, so because he is a very uh, tropey director or, or has a very strong visual style, likes to incorporate many of the same uh, elements, it seems, in uh, his variety of his films. So uh, one of his uh, one of his classics, Childish Adult. Do you think we got a childish adult in this movie? Oh, definitely. We've probably got about three or four in this one, I think. So I'm, um, yeah, be inclined to agree. Uh, a, yep. pers- a personal letter. Yes, there is a letter and a reply. Knitted hat. Yes. <laughs> there's lots of them lots of uh, them stylish neckwear apparently is one of his uh one of his familiar tropes i'm not sure i spotted any but uh i don't know whether you were more eagle-eyed well, than i were yeah well angelica houston's costume in this is amazing and i think at one point sort of the necklaces that she has are particularly brilliant i can't 
I'm seeing it in my head. If if I'm wrong, then I'll be surprised. But I think Angelica Houston's got a great necklace at one point. Great. And then uh, I think the last one I've got is dated audio equipment. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's bingo, I think. Bingo. Yeah. We can call house, I think. The prize is that you get to watch all the other Wes Anderson films. You know what, Helen? I think it's time to get serious on this podcast. So let's take a quick break and get ready to talk about an art house exploding helicopter. On the Simplistic Reviews podcast, we talk movies. We talk TV. We talk... Hello, Julie, what the heck are you doing? Trying to make our spots sound more exciting by adding explosions. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you could have got the point across with sound effects, not the real thing. Download the show on iTunes or at simplisticreviews.blogspot.com. I'm sure your insurance company will cover that. No, they won't. No, they probably won't. We're back for one reason only, and that's to talk about the exploding helicopter action. This occurs towards the end of the movie. Uh, Zizou and his lost son, Ned, fly out to sea in search of the Jaguar shark in a bright yellow Bell 47 helicopter. Unfortunately, due to uh, Steve Zizou's funding problems, the helicopter hasn't been maintained properly. Uh, As it reaches its cruising altitude, there's a loud snap as the rotor mechanism breaks. Uh, There are no histrionics or flashy pyrotechnics here, just a shot of uh, Zizou's trademark Adidas as the chopper plunges towards the sea. We skip forward a short amount of time and we get to see burning wreckage floating on the waves. So, uh, Helen, what do you make of this exploding helicopter? I think the two exploding is a little bit generous um (laughs) anyone who knows anything vaguely about wes anderson films will know that they're not really known for their pyrotechnics or um cgi or anything like that so i think what we do get does give quite an impression that there was flames and there was something maybe happening out of view because obviously we're looking down into the the sea and there is fire on the helicopter when you know we sort of see it in the background in the wreckage when they're floating about but yeah not too big on the explosions it's more on the impact i mean what what how how would you um rate it on the the scale for you well i would agree with you that this is um you know generally i prefer to uh, prefer a more more of an actual explosion as you were saying it's very generous to uh, perhaps describe this as a, an explosion i think clearly one does take place but we don't really get to see any of it we get to see a bit of debris and a bit of aftermath but uh, not nearly enough explosion here that said i mean that is a major disappointment um there were though some things i did like about this and i thought that uh, they were some interesting things that uh, wes anderson was bringing to uh, the exploding helicopter so i i did like the the shots from within the helicopter looking down over the uh, over the uh, adidas trainers down into the sea as the as the helicopter is having its uh, malfunction i did you know that you don't often um you know the temptation is you kind of go to an exterior shot of the uh, the helicopter and show it spiraling down so um there was one very interesting uh, element to this was that um actually we see the sort of the helicopter sort of plunging towards the sea crashes into the sea uh, and then it goes to what is some sort of flashback dream type sequence in the middle of the exploding helicopter here so we have a trip into the surreal within this uh, particular exploding helicopter which is pretty unique really is it has never happened before then that in the middle of the explosion or around this that there's been kind of flashbacks or anything like that uh, well, the only other one that is similar is in the film uh, Munich. So uh, in that film, 
uh, it's, it's, it's quite a uh, it's quite a bizarre exploding helicopter to say the least so in that film uh, Eric Banner is having sex with his wife as he's having sex with his wife his mind goes back to this assault that took place at an airport where sort of commandos are attacking some terrorists who are trying to make a getaway in a helicopter. And um, uh, so he's having these flashbacks to this uh, sort of attack on a helicopter. And um, uh, Spielberg basically sort of, let's just say, both Eric Banner and the helicopter climax, <laughs> they, they explode at the same moment, so to speak. Yeah, I think I remember. I have seen Munich, but not for a long time. I do remember watching that going, interesting, interesting. <laughs> I mean, were you expecting this moment to happen? So I think I remember when I watched it the first time round that I was quite surprised that it happened and obviously the aftermath of it. Were you surprised or were you sort of kind of expecting something might happen with your sort of knowledge? Uh, with my experience of watching exploding helicopter movies, uh, I detected a very heavy hint that this helicopter wasn't going to make it to the end of the movie. So uh, if you think back towards the beginning of the movie, Owen Wilson and Bill Murray take a, a helicopter flight and the uh, crash and explosion are very clearly foreshadowed because uh, for no real discernible reason, um, Owen Wilson asks sort of Bill Murray, oh, there's a bit of clunking on the helicopter. So there is a there is a reason. But uh, Owen Wilson goes, oh, when was this helicopter last um when did it last have a maintenance check and bill murray says oh klaus is supposed to check it once every six months so uh, if you start watching a lot more exploding helicopter movies it's things like that you need to look out for that uh, that's a pretty heavy hint pretty uh, you know pretty strong bit of foreshadowing that uh, there was an exploding helicopter in prospect yeah i we're, having watched it since i'm like okay but i think the first time around um it was a bit of a surprise especially obviously for a wes anderson film to have this much action you know, if I'm ranking this particular exploding helicopter, uh, I think that Wes Anderson, he definitely gets heavily marked down for for not really showing us the helicopter explode. I, I, you know, there's no getting around the fact that he denies chopper fireball fans the thing that they want to see. So, you know, he's very heavily penalised for that. I do think that some of the shots that we get to see here and, and that sort of surrealistic uh, sort of flashback moment do add something a bit unique to uh, the exploding helicopter experience. But I do think that uh, probably overall this this one needs to go into probably somewhere near perhaps not necessarily into the hall of shame but uh, perhaps it should be in the atrium of shame just outside the uh, just outside the hall well i'm glad that it's not as bad as that i think he deserves credit for at least trying to bring an exploding helicopter into the indie film canon so um definitely but uh, yeah disappointing on the actual explosion that's a very good point that you end us on, Helen. I think uh, I think we should uh, our takeaway from this movie should really be the positive that you know here is somebody working in the the art house canon or art, art house genre who is actually trying to incorporate an exploding helicopter into their work. So uh, you know really some of these other directors uh, you know need to take note and uh, really raise their game. I think. I think so, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, I think it's time to pull the plug on this episode. Uh, thanks for joining me, Helen. So do you want to sort of take a moment to tell people about the uh, Flix Watcher podcast and where they can find you? Yep. So we are a Netflix film review show. We have two guests each episode and we review a film that can be found on Netflix. And um, yeah, it's good fun. It's um, 
more of a kind of informal chat than sort of critique. Um, we've also had you as a guest on there. And yeah, it's a, it's a fun show. And uh, we review films that maybe you've sort of been sat there sort of scrolling through going, oh, I don't really know if this is any good or maybe you've heard of it, but you don't really know anything about it. So we're trying to uh, give you a little bit of assistance when you're watching Netflix. And um, you can find us. We're on Twitter at FlixWatcherPod, and if you search for us on iTunes, FlixWatcherPod, you can find us there. Well, it's uh, it's, a, it's definitely a great show, and uh, I always like to listen to the to the episodes. And obviously, I was very honoured that uh, that you invited me uh, on as a guest. So uh, you know, there was uh, there were no exploding helicopters, uh, sadly, in the in the films that we were talking about uh, on those shows. But uh, I don't think that should put any potential listeners off. So uh, yeah. Go and check out the Flix Watcher podcast. Do it now. Um, other things that you should do uh, is go and check out the Exploding Helicopter website uh, for our typically bitchy reviews about films with uh, helicopter explosions in them. We'll be back soon, but until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. <laughs> This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Fluorescent snapper. What? Yeah. What's that? A good sign. The last time we saw that big shit kicker here. Something popped up there, didn't it? I heard a pin snap loose from the rotator mechanism. This is gonna hurt.